Hey, this is Julio. Hey, this is Steve. Before the podcast starts, we want to welcome and give you the opportunity to support our ministry by visiting our website at www.bridgemenlaredo.org. Scroll down to the bottom of any page and you'll find the PayPal donate button. Bridge Ministries exists to share the glorious good news of Jesus Christ and to equip people to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. If you would like to help us in our mission of making affordable or free Bibles and Christian books available and also to check out the orphanage that we support, visit our website. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back with Bridge Radio, episode number 10. Uh, last week, we uh, were talking about Sola Scriptura, and the week before, we had Douglas Wilson on. We uh, talked everything paedo-baptism and post-millennialism, and today, we're going to go ahead and continue on that streak. But before we continue, um, you can go ahead and listen to some of our past podcasts. We've had Jay Warner Wallace, J.P. Holding, Eric Hernandez on. And uh, and coming up in the future, we have in December, Dr. Kenneth Gentry coming on to talk about post-millennialism again. And uh, and I believe sometime in November, we have Creation Ministries International coming on. So, um, But today, we're going to be on the topic of eschatology, specifically the Olivet Discourse. And we have a very important special guest coming on, and, uh, and he's going to talk all things post-millennialism and eschatology. But before we get to that... My name is Julio Rodriguez. You can call me July. I'm your host for uh, Bridge Radio, and across from me, I have one of my buddies, Shane Kirk. How's it going? Glad to be here. And then we have the founder of the ministries, the boss here, Mr. Steve Denhart. How y'all doing? Appreciate you having us here. So yeah, so today's gonna be uh, this podcast is gonna be on the Olivet Discourse, and I'm excited for the person that we're gonna be bringing on today. Um, he is an American writer lecturer. He was once the president of, of American Vision, which was a, a think tank, and um, he's the author of 25 books, many of them on eschatology. Here's, here are a couple of them. Last Day's Madness, Is Jesus Coming Soon, End Times Fiction, A Biblical Consideration of the Left Behind Theology, and Why the End of the World is Not in the Future. Interesting. So um, here is none other than Gary DeMar. Thank you for coming on to Bridge Radio, man. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so just to give um, our listeners a little bit about who you are, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and when Christ drew you to himself? Oh, wow. Uh, let's see. I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I went to Western Michigan University and graduate of Reformed Theological Seminary in mm. Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I've lived in the Atlanta, Georgia area, actually in Marietta, since 1979 after uh, I graduated from seminary and have been working at American Vision since 1980, mm-hmm. and uh, you know been mostly involved in a, a writing and and speaking ministry you know for all that time, and have specialized in a couple of areas: Christian apologetics, of course, eschatology, mm-hmm. uh, American Christian history. Um, almost anything related to you know politics and economics, education, uh, ethics, and, and and so forth. Awesome, yeah. I, I would say along with Canon Press on YouTube, American Vision is is a place that I've gone to and I've learned so much. And I've like been wa- binge watched a lot of your videos, you and Joel McDermott. So uh, 
Excellent. But you said you're from Pittsburgh, and actually Shane Kirk is from, from Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's glad to finally talk to another Pittsburgh native. <laughs> where, where in Pittsburgh? Uh, from the Ross Park area. Okay, yeah, I think you, yeah, I'm in the, I grew up in the South Hills area. In fact, I'm going up there uh, November 7th. I'm going to be on Cornerstone Television to talk about my book, Wars and Rumors of Wars. Mm, awesome. You a Steelers fan by any chance? Yeah, most of the time, uh, you know, when they're winning, when they're losing, I'm not much. I'm not. I haven't really watched much football these last couple of years. It's not. I'm really not as much interested in it as I used to be. A lot of people aren't right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> True All right. enough. Yeah, yeah. All right. So individuals like uh, Greg Bonson, Rush Dooney, Douglas Wilson, Jeff Durbin, Joel McDurbin, and yourself uh, really. Um, had a big influence uh, on my theology and specifically eschatology, and I guess I would say you guys sort of pushed me off of the dispensational premillennial camp. So, but it was it was very interesting how once I changed my eschatology to a po- to the postmillennial side, um, man, it just it changed my whole worldview to my duty as a Christian, and it made me more active, and also glorified the the beauty and sovereignty of God. Um, and this all happened simply with a change of eschatology. So. With that said, Gary, why does eschatology matter, and what is it about the post-millennial uh, worldview that just has such a night-to-day change? Well, when I first you know, started, when I became a Christian, I, I, I wanted to know how things worked. I always mm-hmm. did, even before I was a Christian, and, and I was never satisfied with kind of a pietistic, spiritual you know, you know, next world only religion. And so when I came across topics like economics or politics or whatever, I want to know mm-hmm. what the Bible had to say about them. And, and as I went out and, de- and developed, uh, you know, messages based on that, I would invariably someone in the audience would say, well, why are we bothering with all of this when, you know, the Bible says Jesus is coming soon. This is the final generation. This is the terminal generation. And this was this was in the decade of the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, beca- I became a Christian in 1973 when I was a senior senior in college, and at that time, uh, Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth was was the the book, and that book had sold mm-hmm. you know in the neighborhood of like 30 million 30 million copies, and I think it had a dramatic effect on our where we are today. There are millions and millions mm-hmm. of Christians who still believe. This is the last generation. Uh, Jesus is coming soon. They're going to be raptured out of here. And so anytime they see something going awry politically or economically, ethically, they, they see that as the basis of, of, of their view. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, when I was in seminary, I had read a book uh, by Marcellus Kick on Matthew 24. And uh, that in that book, he demonstrated that the Olivet Discourse and about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and false Christs and false prophets and all of that, uh, that had to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And if that's the case, then a lot of the passages that Christians were using to try to defend their idea that, that uh, the Jesus is coming soon based upon those same passages mm-hmm. that was just completely completely wrong. And so, I, you know, the contention was is that what you believe about the future is going to determine how you live in the present and plan and build for the future. But if mm. you have a shortened view of the future, like someone had said, you know, you don't rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, why, why bother trying to save 
you know, save the, you know, fix things, paint, paint the rails and so forth on, on the Titanic when it's sinking. Yeah. Well, people had the same view of the world. And as a result, I think it's one of the reasons we're in the mess we're in today. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think that, uh, too, having the having a, a post mill eschatology gives us an optimism um, for where we are right now. And and. Uh, an encouragement to do the the work that God has given us to do. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I, you know, we got to remember that, uh, and you, you can't you can't get to you can't get to the millennial perspective until you deal with a lot of these passages mm. that people point to. Says, well, how can you believe this about the future when you know Jesus talks about this great tribulation, or he talks about the wars and rumors of wars and and uh, this uh, the antichrist uh, the beast yeah. uh, man of lawlessness you know gog and magog how how can you say how can you be optimistic about the future when you have all these these prophetic passages right uh, that obviously are into the world yeah. uh, passages and of course i said i always maintain you're assuming something to be true that isn't true mm. uh, what we have to do is assess all of those all of those passages that you've referenced to see what the what the historical context is for those passages and right. and and evaluate them in terms of let scripture interpret scripture don't let the modern modern day you know circumstances you know, dictate what the bible means yeah that was the case with me it was such a way actually it was so new when i first heard greg bonson's lectures like on revelation and the post millennial view and actually when i first came across jeff durbin I was it was a, it was a really wake up call to my presuppositions of eschatology because I always thought it you know the world was going away and going going what did you say a uh, hill in handbasket it was going away <laughs> so um, yeah. why yeah. bother yeah why bother you know it's like telling like we told Douglas Wilson uh, a couple of weeks ago I you know you tell a, a football team they're going to lose at the end of the season and mm-hmm. they ain't even going to try right <laughs> well yeah I mean that's I mean you you know you have children and uh, and if your grandchildren I've got five of my grandchildren here and uh you know we were just talking about today one of my grand grandsons was reading a book about about baseball uh, and uh a children's book and it talked about uh, this one team that had faith and i said you know what what is that and uh, you know it's a in, in not faith in the religious sense right. but you know fa- faith faith in the in the uh in the optimism in the optimism sense i said you know if you don't have faith, you don't you don't try. If you fail, you give up. And and mm-hmm. there's and it's and it's e- see it's easy to give up if you are told that there is nothing to gain by doing anything to, in order to make a change. Right. And so if if you've got a theology that that tells you there is no way to be successful. Uh, it's, that's different from a uh, you know a kid going out and playing baseball and striking out and hanging his head and dragging his bat, and his dad encouraging him and said, "Look, with a little more practice, you can do this here. Let me give you an example: this guy, this guy, and this guy." And a lot of you know most kids they they come around, they learn how to hit the ball, and they learn how to mm-hmm. catch the ball, and they learn how to throw the ball. Mm-hmm. But if you have a theology that says there is no possible way that you're going to hit the ball, there's no way that you can catch the ball. It's a huge difference in in the the outlook of a person. You got a theological position that if you go against that theological position, you are considered unfaithful and mm. and, and, and 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 operating contrary to scripture. 
Uh, so it's a it's a huge huge difference in in the way that we you know we we look at these types of issues. Yeah, amen. Yeah, I would say this whole podcast and me talking to you right now is a result of my change of eschatology, definitely. So, um, all right. So now on to the Olivet Discourse. So I think this is a very very important passage in Scripture for us to understand, um, and a, a lot of us are prior, some of us, or maybe some of our listeners have maybe a wrong uh, wrong presuppositions according to the Olivet Discourse, but it's a, um, the Olivet Discourse is talked about in on three occasions in the Gospel. Um, it's talked about in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 24, and many people have a different interpretation. Uh, some people like Bertrand Russell have concluded that, you know, Christ never came because he said he did in, in, uh, in the Olivet Discourse, and so uh, and some people still think that the whole Olivet Discourse is in the future. Some people say, like us, that what Jesus had said in the Olivet Discourse has already happened. And I believe a lot of this, Gary, falls on the word uh, generation, and that's in Matthew twenty four thirty four. So what did Jesus mean by the word generation? It's a lot of mis... mis- yeah, well, the, the gen- just the word generation means, you know, it refers to a you know people living at the same period of time. And, and you can see the very first time Matthew uses you know, generation in, in his gospel, the very first chapter, uh, and it says, verse 17, Therefore all the generations from Abraham to David are four, 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations. Mm-hmm. So a generation is a period of time in which people live. Mm-hmm. And what's happened over the years, you've had a lot of people say, oh, no, 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 that word generation means race. And so uh, when Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, and it's not talking about a group of people living in a particular time, it's talking about a group of people living throughout history. Uh, this, you know, The Jewish race will not pass away until all these things take place. That's just an, an impossible interpretation for two reasons. Number one, the way the word is used in Scripture, with, beginning with Matthew 1, mm-hmm. verse 17, and the Greek word itself. Uh, the, the Greek word for, for race is genos, mm-hmm. and the Greek word for, for generation is genia. So it cannot mean race. Right. And then, and then when you add, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And and the, and every time the phrase "this generation" is used in the Gospels, it always refers to the generation to whom Jesus is speaking. It never mm-hmm. refers to a future generation. Okay. And 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 in fact, when you look at Matthew chapter twenty-three, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I had a debate with with Thomas Ice over this, and uh, he he said, "Yeah, Gary, you're right. Every time this generation." Is is used in the Gospels. It, it always refers to the to the generation to whom Jesus is speaking. For example, in Matthew twenty three thirty six, Jesus says, "Truly I say to you, not now." That's another prime indicator here. Mm-hmm. The audience relevance here. Jesus is speaking to a particular group of people, and so Matthew twenty three thirty six, when Jesus says, "Truly I say to you," he's not talking to us. He's talking to the people to whom he's addressing. All these things shall come upon this generation, mm-hmm. and so Tommy Ice agreed with me that this generation, and 
in Matthew 23, 36 refers to the generation to whom Jesus is speaking. Mm -hmm. But in Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, it doesn't, he said. He says, but it's the same language. Surely I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Mm -hmm. And so when I was a new Christian and I was reading through the Gospels, and I had read Late Great Planet Earth, but as I was reading the, in my, the Bible, um, I came across this passage and other passages, and it didn't, it's, it, Jesus seemed to be saying, this referred, these things were going to happen to that particular generation. Mm -hmm. And in verse 33 of chapter 24, it says, even so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near or it is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So each and every time this generation is used in the Gospels, it always refers to the generation to whom Jesus is speaking. It does, it's, not, it's not a race. Mm -hmm. It's not the generation that sees these signs. That's the way people like Tim LaHaye translate that. Mm -hmm. Oh, the generation that sees these signs will not pass away. Well, the problem is, Jesus told us what generation would see the signs, even so you two, when you see all these things, he's talking about them. Mm -hmm. And secondly, you end up having to take the word this out and add words to the passage in order to get it to say what you need it to say. Mm -hmm. So that was that was the revelatory uh, uh, issue with me when I read that book by Marcellus Kick on Matthew 24. Uh, if this generation refers to the generation to whom Jesus is speaking, mm -hmm. that means everything in Matthew 24, at least up to verse 34, referred to that generation and no other generation. Right. Okay. So, yeah, even in verse 33 says, so all when you see all these things. So now that we know that, that this generation refers to those people whom he was speaking to in that generation. And am I correct that the generation was within a 40-year time span? I don't, I don't know if you could be specific as to... Okay. Uh, 40 years. I mean, Hal Lindsey in his book, Late Great Planet Earth, said that a generation was 40 years. Some have said it was a se it was 70 years. Hmm. But generally speaking, most have agreed it's around 40 years. Around 40 but I, years. I don't think you could say it's exactly 40 years. Uh, it is, it is, it fits the historical scenario here because Jesus is describing what the disciples asked the question re regarding the temple that Jesus said was going to be left to their generation desolate. Mm -hmm. And then they asked the question about the temple. You mean this temple? And Jesus said, not one stone here uh, will um, cc. Do you not see all these things? Truly, yes, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And so Jesus was referring to that particular temple. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's nothing in the New Testament that says there's a rebuilt temple. So it was that temple. It was that generation. Jesus uses the second person plural throughout the chapter. It was that generation alone. Mm -hmm. And that fits with what took place with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And Jesus's ministry was around AD 30. And so 40 years, uh, mm -hmm. the, so that's, that's why I think most people say a generation is around 40 years, and, and that, that does fit the historical context as well. All right. I know there's a lot of people nowadays with, the, with Israel becoming a nation again and them talking about rebuilding the temple. Uh, what would you say about that as, as far as that prophecy goes? Well, if, if, if a person is a dispensationalist, uh, the Israel being back in their land is irrelevant um, because the dispensationalist says, this is, this is 
this is a lot of a uh, lot of what people don't know about their own system. Uh, we are living according to the most popular view by Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and Mark Hitchcock and all these prophecy writers uh, that they are dispensationalists and they believe in something called a pre-tribulational rapture in which the church is supposedly taken off the earth and then the prophecy clock starts back up again. That we are living in a parenthesis. We're living in a gap of time that has nothing whatsoever to do with Israel. Uh, that there, this is supposed to, and the the rapture is supposed to be a signless event. So Israel becoming a nation again is irrelevant. This side of the rapture, according to the dispensationalists, uh, because there are no signs that this is again according to the dispensationalists. There are no signs that tell us when the this, this supposed rapture event is to take place. So Israel being in the land is is really inconsequential to that. Uh, because if Israel being back in the land is a significant sign, that means the rapture couldn't have taken place prior to uh, Israel becoming a nation again. So that that's something that dispensations don't like to tell you because they wouldn't be able to sell books because their books are all based upon prophecies that they say are being fulfilled right now, and that can't be the case. The second thing is there isn't a single verse in the New Testament that says anything about a rebuilt temple. Nothing. There is nothing in the New Testament that says anything about Israel becoming a nation again. Nothing. And yet those are the, the so you have no, there's no passage that says anything about a, the church being raptured, that is taken to heaven, prior to a seven-year tribulation period. There's not a single verse in the New Testament that says anything about a temple being rebuilt. And thirdly, there is nothing in the New Testament that says anything about Israel becoming a nation again. So the, the three main, the three, you know, uh, legged stool of dispensationalism doesn't really have any legs to stand on. And so all of these, these, all this speculative eschatology that we're hearing today, there are actually no verses that you can point to that specifically support such a position. Uh, it's really a phantom, it's really a phantom view. And uh, it's amazing that it, it has stood the test of time uh, for as long as it has, uh, you know, mid-19th century. Yeah, I believe I was watching one of your videos, too, and I think there was a, f a clip that you showed um, of John MacArthur saying that, too, about Scripture, there not really being any Scripture for the rapture. I think it was on your on the American Vision channel. I'm not sure. So. Yeah, they, yeah, there's, they all admit, I mean, Tim, Tim LaHaye admits, he says, oh, there's uh, you know, post post and I don't want to get too much too technical for your audience because I don't know where they are <laughs> on all this, but but there there are five different rapture positions and uh, uh, when when it's when a pre-tribulationalist is accused of not having a scripture passage for its position, mm -hmm. they don't come they don't say oh oh yes we do they say well you don't have one either mm -hmm. uh, and that's essentially Tim LaHaye's argument yeah that's true that the pre-tribulationalist doesn't have a a passage that supports the rapture of the church prior to a seven-year period, but they'll say to the post-tribulationalist, post well, you don't have one either. Hmm. And in fact, none of the five positions has one, and, and that's why I say it's a, probably one of the reasons is, is because there's no such thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's where we are today. And I, you know, most Christians have really never studied this. They've, hmm. they've only listened to people talk on the subject but they've never really looked at those passages in their historical context and made the case for themselves. 
I see, I see. So let's back up on the Olivet Discourse. Let's go back to uh, verse number three, when the disciples ask us, tell us when these things will be, what will the sign of your coming, and the end of the age. So did Jesus answer all three of these questions? Oh, I believe he did, yes. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and if a lot of people, uh, they have a King James Version, mm-hmm. uh, it'll say end of the world. And okay. they'll say, see, see, Jesus was talking about the end of the world here. Well, he wasn't. He was talking about the end of the age, yeah, because the, the age. Greek word that's there isn't cosmos. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it is the is Greek word uh, aeon, which we get the word eon from, which is, means age, a period of time. Age. And they and they under look they understood what aeon meant. Okay. Um, you know they they understood that if the temple if the temple were to be destroyed uh, or done away with that it would be the end of the old, of their old covenant. They wouldn't have called it the old covenant age, but it would have been the end of Judaism, uh, which was the was to them the the center of of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it and it wouldn't necessarily have been the end of the world because you have to remember that they had a temple before in the Old Testament that was done away with, and the whole world wasn't done away with. It was their their whole lifestyle was put on hold for 70 years as they were they were in the in the captivity so it was the end of the jewish age related to the sacrificial system and everything related to it with a high priest and and uh and, and, te- and the temple itself interesting yeah so when it's so now now we're gonna go through some uh, some of the passages or some of the verses throughout the olivet discourse that many interpret future as a futurist and so one of them being Matthew 24, 21, I've gotten this, this uh, verse uh, pointed out, and it says, For there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So a lot of people will say, especially to us post-millennialists, preterists, they'll go like, how? How? Like, we've had the Holocaust, we've had World War II, um, Shane was talking to me about that right now, and we've had other just tragic events um, so what would your response be on this, Gary, um, just with Jesus saying that? And having well, first, verse? what verse 34 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Jesus said all these things are going to take place before that generation passes away, which means verse 21 has got to, have, has got to fit within the context of that generation and that generation alone. Hmm. The other thing is, all you have to do, the context of this, you know, the all about this course, at least Matthew's version of it, does not begin in Matthew chapter 24. It begins in chapter 21. Mm-hmm. And we don't have, to, you know, we don't have time to go through all that, but you look, gee, this whole thing starts in Matthew chapter 21. And it's a one long indictment of unbelieving uh, Israel, especially the leadership of Israel, and you have to read it against the backdrop of those chapters, and especially chapter 23, uh, where you know Jesus says, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, mm-hmm. and you were unwilling. Verse 32, fill up the measure of the guilt of, you, of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? And then, verse chapter twenty-four. There's you have to remember there were no 
chapter or verse divisions in the original manuscripts. Right. And Jesus says, you know, your house is being left to you desolate, verse 38. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when the disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. So the, the context of this is what was going to happen to that generation, and it, the, the, uh, the outward manifestation of that was the temple. So Jesus is describing what's going to take place to their generation. Now, look at verse 16. Uh, actually, if you look at verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And let him who is in, in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babes in those days. Mm -hmm. Pray that your your flight may uh, not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a local judgment. This isn't something that's worldwide. To escape this judgment, all you had to do, you was flee to the mountains outside of Judea on mm -hmm. foot. Now, if Jesus is describing a worldwide judgment, why would he give these indicators of escape when there was no possible way to escape. So the tribute, this great tribulation that Jesus is describing is not a great tribulation for the entire world. It was a description of their time period. And according to the nature of the covenant that God had was with Israel, it was in fact the greatest tribulation that ever was or ever will be because that old covenant relationship was completely cut off. And it and it has nothing to do with what happens to Jews today or what happens to you know World Wars World War One or two or any other war mm -hmm. because it's not covenantally significant for for Israel. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you go back to Ezekiel, that's the same language as as used in Ezekiel chapter five, verse. I believe it's chapter five verses. Uh, let's look at this here a second. And this is a description. This is a description of the, the destruction of the first temple. Okay. Uh, verse seven, uh, chapter five, verse seven. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you, and you have not walked in my statutes, nor observed my ordinances, nor observed the ordinances of the nations which surround you. Mm -hmm. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you and I will execute judgments on among you in the sight of the nations. Mm -hmm. And because, and listen, and because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you, and sons will eat their fathers. For I will execute judgments on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. This is a description of the the destruction of the first temple. But notice what it says. I have, uh, I will do among you what I have not done and the like of which I will never do again. Hmm. And Jesus uses that same language to describe the destruction of the temple in Matthew 24. Hmm. And some have described this as a rhetorical superlative. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. Right. You go, you go through the Old Testament, and you will you will note that when a when there was a, a a king a king, it would say this is the greatest king who ever was or ever will be. And then 
the next king or a couple kings down the road will say, this is the greatest king who ever was or ever will be. Solomon is described as the greatest king who ever was or ever will be. Now, the problem with that is when you get the description of Jesus, Jesus is described as the greatest who ever, ever, king who ever was or ever will be. But wait a minute, it says Solomon was. But see, Matthew says, but now someone greater than Solomon is here. John the Baptist says, there was no man born of women, of, of, of a woman, who was greater than Solomon. Well, Jesus was born of a woman, and he, I mean, not Solomon, but John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Jesus was born of a woman, and yet he's greater than John the Baptist. That the, the the book of Daniel uses the same type of language. This is a this is something that was uh, greater than it ever was or ever will be. Mm-hmm. Noah's flood was the greatest flood that ever was or ever will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, if you say, "Well, Noah's flood was the greatest that ever was or ever will be," for those who hold that the that the um, the flood covered the entire earth and left only eight people, you know, behind. Well, what this isn't going to be the case for a future great tribulation. They're all, uh, they're going to be more than eight people left according to this end time view. So that kind of language, you know, is is not unusual. It's typical of scripture, but the context is very important here. Mm-hmm. That this is this is discussion of what's going to happen to Israel as a nation, and for Israel, this was was more significant than anything around the world. For the, for the Jews, because the center of their life was 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 taken away from them. Yeah. So the, yeah, let's let's talk about that for a minute. We have the, so what was the abom uh, the abomination of desolation and this great tribulation that happened in seventy A.D. and and how the Christians left. If you could go 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 through for our audience uh, through that. Yeah, the abomination of desolation is some abominable thing that brings about desolation. And and uh, Luke describes it. That Luke has this: uh, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you know that its desolation is at hand. Mm. Uh, so that adds a little bit more to it. Now, a lot of commentators will say, "Well, the, the the abomination that brought about the desolation was the 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 Roman armies and their uh, the insignia that were on their standards and maybe on their shields." That was the abomination that brought about the desolation. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would God destroy the temple in Jerusalem for something the Romans did? Mm-hmm. And so the abomination that brings about desolation has some, has got to do with something that the Jews did. Mm-hmm. And we see see these types of things in the Old Testament: Nadab and Abihu, uh, um, you know, offering offering sacrifices that you know, they should not have been been offering, a, you know, cor- a corrupt priesthood, and so. A lot of people believe that the abomination that brings about the desolation is the fact that the Jews were continuing to offer sacrifices in the temple mm-hmm. when Jesus was, in fact, the you know the sacrifice. Yeah. It, it was a complete denial of everything that Jesus was, and Jesus gave them forty years, the preaching of the gospel, uh, forty years to repent, forty years to come to to Christ, forty years to abandon the temple. Turn it into a museum, maybe, uh, you know, like uh, like uh, Answers in Genesis does with yeah. the, you know, with the ark. You uh, know, turn it into a museum. Say, look, this, and we do this today. There are lots of people who take the 
you know, take the temple and, and they they build it and they say, well, now this refers to Jesus. The door here refers to Jesus and mm-hmm. the, the labor refers to Jesus. And this is where the sacrifices took place. You know, they had turned it into a museum, but they didn't. They continued to reject Jesus as the Messiah 40 years and and uh, it was it was destroyed. Mm-hmm. So the abomination that brings about desolation was probably things related to what the priests were doing. Uh, and uh, there was a very corrupt priesthood that was taking place. This Essentially, it was the last straw for right. Israel. This temple was going to go one way or another. This was the way it was going to go. And Jesus, mm-hmm. Jesus brings in, like God in the Old Testament brought in the Babylonians to destroy the temple, Jesus brings in the Romans to destroy the temple, something that, that Israel should have done. Hmm. Awesome. And then th- there's also... Um... Christians actually left uh, in Jerusalem, uh, if you could explain that too, once they saw uh, Rome surrounding Jerusalem. Um, If you could talk about that too, because I think that's just so, it's so awesome that what Jesus predicted and what he told the people for the generation to come, they followed and they obeyed him. So Yeah, in fact, fact, if you look at the book of Acts, it's interesting in the early chapter of Acts, I think it's chapters 2 and 4, that the the Jews were selling their property. Now, you know, the land was extremely important to, you know, to a Jew, and yet they they sold their property. Why would they do that? Well, they did it because they knew the prediction that within a generation, they didn't know, you know, within a generation, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. They didn't know if it was going to be 40 years, 10 years, 15 years, and they, and they, uh-huh. they sold their property uh, because they knew <clears throat> they knew this was coming. And you'll also find in Acts chapter 8 uh, that uh, when the perse- persecution took place, uh, there, the, these Christian Jews were, were scattered. They left Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they knew it was coming as well. Um, but yes, as the, as the Romans you know, began their assault— uh, on the temple, and by the way, the Romans just didn't attack the temple because they wanted to attack the temple. Mm-hmm. There, there was there was this rebellion that was taking place, and and essentially, you know, Rome was you know defending itself against against insurgency, the zealots, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And and you're right, there when they when they saw Jerusalem surrounded by armies, there was a kind of a, a break. It's like the the the, the Romans. Uh, you know, stopped the battle for a while, and there was a time to escape. But soon after that, it was in. It was cl- it was closed in, and those people caught within the circle of of the you know, surrounding Roman armies were slaughtered. I mean, the mm-hmm. bloodbath was 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 just un- unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, in this the passage out of Ezekiel um, chapter five about mm-hmm. uh, about in the Old Testament, uh, you know, people literally eating their own their own children, yeah. which 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 did in fact happen during the siege of Jerusalem in AD seventy, mm-hmm. where Josephus tells the story of a woman uh, who the soldiers come upon a woman they they smell burning flesh and she is actually she has actually cooked her own child baby, uh, yeah. because she was yeah she was starving to death um, and wow. so and we and we get we get this from a secular source uh, the wars wars of the Jews which was written by Josephus who was a Jewish historian uh, who who wrote for the Romans and the, and the War of the Jews, which is online, you can read it anywhere, mm-hmm. and the depiction of what took place with the destruction of Jerusalem was was horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, blood literally ran, you know, down the, 
uh, yeah. the, uh, the the steps of of, of the te- of, of the temple. People were slaughtered. Place was burned. People were crucified. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a it was a I mean it was a great it was, it was a great it tribulation. Was a great to tribulation. Be sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. So um, now let's. I wanted to focus on twenty nine through thirty one. Um, and because a lot of people who have a futurist interpretation on this, they'll say like, "Well, what is this lingo?" You know, that it's, it's yeah, Jesus is talking, not fully understanding the context of yeah, it. Yeah, not fully understanding the context of it. Me and Shane were going back and forth about this, so I would love for you, Gary, to to um, to talk about that. But uh, let me just go ahead and read verse twenty nine. It says, "Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear." Uh, in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out uh, his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect uh, from the four winds and to the ends of the heavens to others. So, you know, uh, we get the exe- uh, the objection all the time. We're like, well, what is all this lingo? So what's all this lingo, Gary? <laughs> Well, the lingo. Uh, let's let's begin with with context again. We're still yeah. we're still left with this generation will not pass away. Yes. And I, there's a very good commentary by D. A. Carson on on Matthew. And what's interesting about Carson, at every he's, he maintains that everything up through verse 28 refers to the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and that's very good. But the problem is. Verse twenty nine, because it says the I mean the very the very two first two words, but immediately. So if if everything up through verse twenty eight refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD seventy, and I did a video series some years ago, and there's very somebody everyone everyone would know who went through my video series, and as I went through each one of these, he he said, yeah, I think well Gary Demar is right, he's right, but I don't want to see how he deals with verses twenty nine through. 31, the very verses you're bringing up. Yeah. And he says, I can't see how he's going to be able to do this. Well, it's not what I can do. It's what the Bible says. Mm. So it says, so if you believe that up through verse 28 refers to events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. then you got to say verse 29 does too, because it says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. Right. Yeah. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a direct quotation from Old Testament passages. Yes, uh, Isaiah chapter Isaiah chapter thirteen, which refers to Babylon, mm. and other exactly. and other passages in Scripture, Ezekiel thirty-two, uh, et, et cetera. Uh, you know, the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. The heavens will darken. Uh, the, and uh, uh, I mean, the um, sun will darken. And of course, if the sun darkens, the moon darkens as well. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is typical. This is typical language. And even today, if you look on most flags across the world, you'll see three prominent images on on most flags. You'll mm-hmm. see the sun, you'll see the moon, and you'll see stars. Mm-hmm. Our flag, of course, stars, uh, Japan, sun, and you've got Islamic nations, moon. Uh, the, the, the nations were depicted in with this type of, of symbolism, and Jerusalem itself was, or Israel was. In, in Genesis chapter 37, you know, there's, Joseph has this dream mm-hmm. of, uh, of the sun, moon, and stars, the 11 stars bowing down to him. Well, it's obvious it's referring to his mother and his father and uh, his, his, his brothers. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then you get into the book of Revelation where you have this this woman who you know, stands on the moon draped with the sun and has 12 stars. And that relates to, you know, to Israel. Um, and so when it talks about the sun that will be darkened, the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. It's not it's not describing what's going to actually happen to the sun, the moon and the stars, uh, because when stars fall uh, in, the, in the book of Revelation uses falling stars, mm-hmm. there's a third of the stars, you know, were thrown down to Earth. Oh, wait a minute. A third of the stars are going to be thrown down to, to Earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, if one one star even got close, I mean, the sun itself is 93 million miles away. You take a third of the stars and you throw them down to the earth, man, mm-hmm. there's no earth left. And yet in the book of Revelation, this happens relatively early in the book of Revelation, and you, there's still some history left here. Mm. Uh, so this type of language is typical of Old Testament language, you know, describing the fall, judgment, and fall of nations. Mm. And it's attributed to what's going to happen to Israel. Jesus' disciples understood exactly what he was saying. They weren't they didn't believe that you know the sun, moon, and stars were going to fall from you know, go dark and fall. Yeah, they didn't. Right. They, if, if, yeah, if if they knew, I would say instead of saying literally, I would say physically. Yeah. They, they they understood the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and you can read the whole Old Testament, and you can see that language is typical. And I again, I outline all this in my book, Wars and Rumors of Wars, all the passages that I use. And uh, so I'm not making this stuff up. This isn't anything new to me. I didn't. Yeah. I'm not coming on your show and saying, "Hey, look what I found." No one else has found <laughs> uh, this. They, this is you go back and looking at older commentaries. This is the position that they they took. And part of the what we have here are are some translation issues. You read it right. The fall from the sky. It's really it's the Greek word oranos, and it, and it can be either translated as sky or heaven. Here it should be from the, from from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Be shaken yeah. um, and that's, if you look at the book of Hebrews, you'll get a better understanding of that. Again, this isn't talking about actually vibrating heavens. There's something right. else going on here. And then this, then the next verse, verse 30. Yes, I, the, I, I want you to go over this one, because this one tripped okay. me up yeah. so much. Especially verses <laughs> yeah. 31 with the, the loud trumpet call. Like, what could that yeah. possibly yeah. be? Yes. So let's look, at, let's look at 30. And then this... The sign of the Son of Man will appear as they have appear in the sky. Mm-hmm. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Mm-hmm. And then all the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see, and I'm quoting Jesus, quoting an Old Testament passage, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The sign here isn't Jesus coming down on a cloud to earth, the sign here is that Jesus is, is enthroned in heaven. Yes. That's what's going on here. And this is why when Jesus quotes the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, he's quoting Daniel 7, 13. Mm-hmm. And when you go back and you look at Daniel 7, 13, you'll see that Daniel 7, 13 talks about the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. Mm-hmm. Well, the Ancient of Days is in heaven. And so this is this is what's what's going on here is Jesus was was already taken up into heaven Acts chapter 1. He's enthroned in heaven when Stephen is executed by Paul by Saul at that point. Mm-hmm. You see heaven's open and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Mm-hmm. The the Bible passage is quoted 
more often than any other passage from the Old Testament is Psalm Psalm 110, verse 1, where Jesus is enthroned in heaven and he makes earth his footstool. And so the sign is is that Jesus is in heaven. Yeah. It's the sign isn't that Jesus is going to come out of heaven and come down to earth. That's not what this passage is dealing with at all. Right. And we know this because Jesus quotes the the, the Daniel seven thirteen passage. Hmm. The the next passage is a little more difficult. In fact, you had mentioned Doug Wilson. I was out in Moscow a couple of weeks ago, and Doug and I did a little um, <laughs> uh, question and answer um, a forum uh-huh. uh, out there, and uh, someone had asked a question about what are the most you know difficult passages mm-hmm. uh, you know dealing with this subject, and of of, of course the. Uh, verse 21 and uh, the sun, moon, and stars language, and 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 this one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is probably the most most difficult one. I don't think the great tribulation one is the most difficult. I think this one is. But it, every every um, example here, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, mm-hmm. verse 31, and he will send forth his angels. And and some have said, well, they're just messengers. But you know, uh, R.T. France says no. Uh, Angels do, in fact, work within the realm of the unseen mm-hmm. to to further God's God's work. And with a great trumpet, they will gather together his elect from the four four winds from one one end of heaven to the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the idea of the great trumpet is 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 found in in the Old Testament. If you look at Isaiah chapter twenty seven thirteen. So let me let me turn to that Isaiah. 27. Um, and you you notice that I am trying to do all of this just by reading the Bible. Right. Uh, you you letting, don't have to yeah, you're yeah, let the Bible speak for itself. Exactly. I always tell people the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. Mm-hmm. Um, with a concordance and with things that are available online, you can do this yourself. Um, some of the translation issues, you know, a lot of people wouldn't know to look uh, to see that sky, the, the, the Greek word oranos, uh, you know, typically, you know, Paul says, I was caught up into the third, the third heaven. Hmm. Uh, so obviously oranos can be used in three different contexts. Right. Uh, you know, the, just the sky above us, oranos, the, the atmosphere beyond that, oranos, heaven itself, oranos. Context is going to dictate what it is. Mm-hmm. So, if you look at Isaiah chapter twenty-seven about a trumpet, twenty-seven verse thirteen, it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria, and who were scattered in the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Now, I looked up all the commentators on this, most of the commentators on this, and this they'll just say, look, this is again typical language. Uh, if, no one in Jerusalem is going to be blowing a trumpet that is going to be be heard in Assyria, but this this language is being used to describe how God is going to call His people from captivity and bring them back to the land. And the same thing is happening here in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, J- Jesus is describing what is going to take place. Uh, or what was was taking place, in fact, and what would continue to take place with the gathering of God's uh, gathering of God's people, uh, you know, into one new man in Christ, as we read in in Matthew ch- in uh, Ephesians chapter two. Mm-hmm. Let me give you one real interesting passage out of 
the Gospel of John, if I can, if I can find this. Um, yeah. John chapter 11 um, and verse 47. Jesus, again, is, um, you know, this is the leading up, you know, to the, you know, the, the work of Jesus. And the, 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 throughout the Gospels, you find uh, that the, the religious leaders want to try to trick Jesus, bring him to some, some decision and get mm-hmm. him out of the way because he was messing up things for them. Mm-hmm. Verse 47, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Hmm. Now, I want you to be understand something. These people were more concerned about what the Romans were doing than about what God was doing with them. Yeah. And but a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, "You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it, it is expedient for you that one man should die." for the people, and that the whole nation should not perish. Now, what Hmm. he meant by that was, one man should die. This Jesus dies, and the nation will be saved, and the Romans won't come and take our place away. That's the way they were reading this. And so it's it's, uh, it's like the the, uh, Oracle of Delphi. You know, you can read a prophecy one way or another, and it can be applied in two two different ways, depending on the the true meaning of it. They got it wrong. Then verse 51, now this he did not say in his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so I think what you're seeing here is this this trumpet is blown in, in the way that Isaiah is using it in, in Isaiah chapter 27, and the gospel call is going out to Jews who were scattered all over the Roman Empire at that time. And remember, the book, the books of James and First Peter are written to the diaspora, to those Jews who were scattered abroad. And the gospel, in fact, I mean, you have you know, Peter reluctant to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and you have Paul taking the, uh, the, the, the gospel you know, throughout the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why we skipped over verse 14 mm-hmm. uh, in Matthew 24. But that verse, I think, f- brings the, all this fulfillment. The gospel had been pro- proclaimed, according to Paul to, Paul, to every creature under heaven. Mm-hmm. And, the, and God's emissaries, God's, the angels, were facilitating this work as the gospel was moving with God's earthly angels, God's earthly ministers. The word angelos simply just means minister. So mm-hmm. they were working in unison with all this. So this all fits with what took place historically. Read through the book of Acts and see how the gospel spread. You right. know, the gospel had been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Even Paul says it had been proclaimed to all the nations uh, throughout the oikumene, the, 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 uh, throughout the Roman Empire, the world of that day. Mm-hmm. So this all fits uh, and you don't have to do any extraneous way of looking at the Bible turning this generation into the, you know different generation or a race or what yeah. all, all that. It all fits, and it makes the Bible seamless in its its in interpretation. Mm, yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out was on verse 30 when it says, Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. I noticed you said uh, all the tribes of the land will mourn. So yeah, I have the ESV translation. So would the—because on the ESV translation I have earth, would— 
land be? Yeah, the ESV really, the ESV really frustrates me. Okay. Because uh, and I and I I quoted a little bit in in here about their claim of trying to do a you know a, a, a literal translation, mm-hmm. and it's it's amazing to me that they they you know it's not like they don't know this stuff, okay. uh, but if you look at um, I think I'm pretty sure in Matthew 24, 14, uh, they they um, they translate oikumene as as world, mm-hmm. and that's just an that's just not a good translation. Okay. Uh, you know the if you look at two one, it says that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world be taxed. Well, it's not Rome can't tax the whole world; it can only tax the Roman Empire, yeah. and that's why Luke Luke uses. Oikumene, and most most translations translated either as Roman Empire or inhabited Earth. Hmm. I, I I see it more as political, you know, political boundary. No, so just like yeah. the Greek word oranos mm-hmm. can mean sky, atmosphere, and and the domain of God, heaven. Mm-hmm. The Greek word gase or gay uh, can also mean dirt, land, or earth. Okay. Uh, and the and the Greek word there is is uh, is, is is gay or gays. Mm-hmm. We get the word ge- geography, uh, geography mm-hmm. from from that Greek word, uh, mm-hmm. um, geo writing the yeah. earth. I mean, so right. Uh, so the, I think the better translation because of tribes. We don't. I mean, there are tribes today. I guess maybe in various. Uh, places in Africa, but we don't use the word tribe like that today, but they certainly used mm-hmm. it back then. And so the tribes are what are the tribes of Israel are what's in view here. And the tribes of the land is, is what's in view here because it's the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment upon that particular generation that's in view, mm-hmm. not the whole wide world. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's typically the way the Greek word there is is used in various contexts. And you, you you'll see it You'll see it in, I think, in Luke, Luke 21. Um, I can find this real fast. Luke 21. Uh, Luke 21, verse. Uh, well, let's begin with verse 20. Let's get the full context. Luke, Luke 21, verse 20 says, "But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, notice the the audience reference. When yeah. you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, yeah, and and the, then you recognize that her desolation is at hand, that is near." Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart, and let those who are in the country uh, enter the city, which is a parallel with Matthew chapter 24. Because these are days of vengeance, in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Hmm. Woe to those who are with child and to those who who nurse babes in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. See, you can see Luke is putting a Jewish spin on this. He doesn't use tribes because he's Greek. Matthew is using tribes, and you've got Luke who's got to explain this to a broader Roman audience upon the land. And even the New American Standard, which often follows the ESV on some of this, Mm -hmm. even translates gay as land and wrath to this people, this people meaning the Jews of that generation to whom Jesus warned that if they didn't escape, they were going to be caught up in the melee. Hmm. Then 
And then verse 24, and they will and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be tra- trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And so here you see this is ex- this is a exact description of what took place, but it's put together in language for a for a more uh, a general Roman audience where Greek Greek was was spoken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what what a Bible translation would you recommend? Oh, we're a Christian bookstore and coffee shop here. So, what's the what's the Gary Demar tra- uh, recommendation? Oh, boy. <laughs> I you know I I use a New American Standard, but it got it has its problems too. Okay. I I just recommend that uh, that you be aware. If you of really these things. if you really want to be a student of Scripture, right? You need to get a a a Greek English interlinear. Okay. Uh, and they're online. You can go to Bible Hub, um, and they're and, and any. I use Bible Hub. It's I, I like it. Uh, it's okay. just easy. I have it on my phone everywhere now, everywhere else. It has an interlinear. So you go go to go to a particular passage. You um, uh, you know you click on the you know, click on the verse. Pick the the gr the Greek, and a Greek interlinear shows up and shows gives you all gives gives you the Greek word and the and the translations and. Okay. And, and and any any anybody I don't care who you are can learn to read the Greek alphabet. I mean, if you if you if you can say alphabet, you got you got the first two letters alpha beta. Yeah, if you can say <laughs> alpha and omega, you got the last you got the one two and the last one. Uh, uh-huh. Pi. If you've taken a math class, you got pi. Yeah. T looks T likes looks like a T. Mm-hmm. I, I looks like an I. E looks like a an E. Um, uh, ends ends a little different. Looks like a V, but I mean, mm. you got you got about seventy five percent of them already. Yeah. Uh, it, and it it reads like like uh, like Spanish. I mean, you just whatever the. Mm. It's not like it, it's not like you're reading English, where you know you got different words that that uh, our two our two of our grandchildren that are here are, are reading, uh, and they come across the word do d o u g h. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not you're not going to come across words like that. It reads very very literal. It's a very literal language in terms of, of pronunciation. So if you really want to be a student of the Bible, get yourself a Greek, English, and a linear. Spend a little time with it. Now, if you have a pastor, any pastor went to seminary, he can certainly help you with it. Hmm. Uh, so it's, I mean, we'll get those. That's what I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what I do. I check, I always check the Greek. Yeah. Um, and, and the ESV I, I wonder if it has a little foot, you know, a little uh, marginal note that tells you what. This is what frustrates me about the New American Standard. It'll say in the margin, it'll say literally this. I, I want to say, well, if, it, if it's literally that, then put it in the text as literal, and 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 put the secondary, put the secondary um, uh, translation in the margin. Uh-huh. Um, but there's always a bias. The New American Standard was put together mostly by premillennialists. ESV was put together by by premillennialists as as well. Yeah, I remember um, Dr. Kenneth Gentry saying that. <laughs> he was saying yeah. some of these translations have a a, a presupp like people with already a, a, a premillennial eschatology uh, writing them or doing the translating. So. Yeah, so uh, there are there's Young's literal translation. Uh, even there's some things that he doesn't get quite right. That's why I say go with the Greek English in a linear. Uh, if you are online, everything you need is there. You can click on the word. It'll take you to a Strong's Concordance. It'll give you the definition. It's all there. You, there's no excuse anymore for, you know, today for people, people who, um, 
say, well, you know, I know there are a lot of people who say, well, the King James says world, and mm-hmm. so that's the way it ought to be. But, you know, any, any, any pastor worth his salt who gets to Luke 2.1 and says they're, you know, <laughs> um, they have to explain that in some way yeah. to say that the a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the yeah. whole world is, you know, is going to be taxed. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, you you nowadays, I mean, even if you just look at logos, I mean, or even our phones, like literally all of the answers are answers you can find answers at the tip of your fingers, mm-hmm. like it's like right there on your phone. Or yeah, this was know, all invented. This was all invented for us. People yeah. you know, talk about people talk about the end of the world and all this stuff is it's all online. Yeah. Uh, it, and uh, it, it's advan- it's advancing uh, biblical studies like like never before. They're good. Yeah. I, I'll look I'll look for something, and I said, well, "Look at this. There's a there's a book that's scanned. It's got all of this stuff in it that I would mm-hmm. I couldn't find the book, and if I did find it, I'd have to go through interlibrary loan. That's not that all the books are online. Yeah, it, it's, th- this is there's no excuse anymore for get, getting this stuff right. Yeah, yeah. So Gary, do you have time for maybe two more questions? We we went sure. way over, man. <laughs> well, I had Shane looking at me, and he's like, "Man, we're way past." <laughs> but I just thank you again. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, okay, go ahead. So so um, yeah, we've gotten through at least to verse twenty five uh, for Matthew twenty four. So I want to talk about because uh, the chapter's not done yet. Verses thirty six through fifty one, and listen to some of Doctor Greg Bonson's lectures. He says that there's a change up here because when it says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. And he says that at that moment, it changed from uh, present to future. Yeah, present to future. So if, if you could just talk about that for a moment. Uh, this is where, this is where Greg Bonson uh, and uh, Ken Gentry and I disagree. OK. Uh, and uh, actually, Marcellus kicked, too, because if you read Marcellus Kick's book, Matthew 24, okay. he, he sees the division taking place at verse 35. Um, okay. heaven, and, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And Marcellus Kick said here, well, this is describing the passing away of, of heaven and earth, and no one knows the day and the hour of when that's going to take place. And I, I held that position for a long time, um, but ha- passing away of heaven and earth in Scripture is is often just an indicator of the passing away of the Old Covenant. You can see that in I, Isaiah 65 and 66. Um, and, and so in Jesus was described, if you look, go back up there again, the you know, sun, moon, and stars falling and mm-hmm. so forth, that's essentially passing away of, of, of heaven and the destruction of Jerusalem is passing away of the land. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I think the disciples would have understood that not as past the whole universe. Okay. And notice what it says. It says, you know, uh, no one will know the day and the hour. Um, Jesus says this generation will pass, will not pass away until all these things take place, but no one knows who the day, no one knows the day and the hour when that was going to take place. That's mm-hmm. why you needed to pay attention to these, to some to some of these signs, that is, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Okay. Um, so, um, let me see what else was in here. Even um, if was going to pass away, but that day and hour, not even the angels. So I, that. So, oh, oh, I know what I wanted to show you. I want you to go with. I want you to go to Luke seventeen. Okay. Luke seventeen. Luke seventeen. Here. Yeah, this is it. This is interesting because Luke has about three, 
four places where the destruction of Jerusalem is is described. If, if you look at Luke, um, Luke 13 is a little more cryptic. Um, I think it's, um, yeah, Luke 13. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices and answered and said to them, you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Hmm. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is this is describing <laughs> what is going to take place because the people's blood was in fact mingled with the sacrifices because of what the Romans did, and people were also um, uh, destroyed when the when towers fell on them. Okay. Luke seven Luke seventeen, and he said to the, verse twenty two, and Jesus said to the disciples, "The days shall come upon you." Um, when you will uh, long to see the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away, um, and do not run after them. Mm-hmm. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out, one part of the sky or heaven shines to the other part of the of heaven, uh, that the Son of Man will, will, will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall happen in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage and so forth. It was the same as happened a lot. And then if you verse verse 30, and it will be just be uh, it will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Remember Lot's wife. Mm-hmm. Now, what what you do if here's what you do. You take these the, the description of what's taking place here in Luke 17. And you and you number them one, two, three, four, five, and then you go to Matthew chapter twenty-four, okay. and you and you find the parallels, and you number them one, two, three, four, five, mm-hmm. and what you will see is that some of them are in Matthew's gospel, take you know show up after verse thirty-five and thirty-six, the story about about Noah, okay, and Lot and Lot's days. Uh, verse 37 of Matthew 24, for the, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage until uh, until the day that Noah entered the ark. Mm-hmm. And so in Luke's version, this passage takes place before the uh, the uh, passing away of, of, of heaven and earth. Uh, so you so to use verse thirty five verses thirty five and thirty six as a demarcation of a dividing line between what took place in AD seventy mm-hmm. but what's going to take place in the future doesn't work because Luke seventeen mixes them up. Okay. Um, and I have a chart in my book uh, uh, Prophecy Wars, mm-hmm. which which shows this. Um, and so. I, and so my my view is Jesus is just continuing on with this. Uh, part of the argument is, well, well, wait a minute. Jesus is talking about, uh, if you go to chapters 24 and 25, about after a long time. And Ken makes, Ken makes the point, say, oh, after a long time is different from this generation will not pass away. 
But if you again, if you read the context in, in, in the rest of 24 and 25, the, the, the master returns to the, to the, the people that he left. Mm-hmm. He doesn't return to some future generations of people. He returns to the people he left. So long time, uh, 40 years is a long time. A generation is a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just think that this Jesus is just continuing with what he's doing here, but he's just adding more things to it. Luke doesn't have any of this. Uh, Matthew does, because I think, again, Matthew is dealing with, with Israel to such an extent, it goes all the way from chapter 21 to 25. Mm-hmm. I deal with this in great detail in my book, Last Day's Madness. Okay. It's not in my book, uh, uh, Wars and Rumors of Wars, uh, and uh, but I, I do deal with it in my book, Last Day's Madness. I have a chapter in there on, on, this, on this very question that you asked. Okay. Last question from Shane, because I know a lot of people use uh, some language in that in those verses uh, to talk about the rapture. Can you give a better explanation as to to why they're wrong and and why the biblical context does not point towards the rapture? For the for Noah. instance, uh, yeah, for yeah, even two the, men uh, in the field, the, one will be taken. Yeah, yeah. Them. You go down here. It says, um, yeah, for in those days, verse thirty-eight. Well, verse thirty-seven. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall be the coming of the Son of Man. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. This this has been used as as a as rapture passages. Dispensationalists have gotten away from it, and uh, I even think John Walvoord, and I, I, I can't be absolutely sure. I, I think John Walvoord even says this isn't referring to the rapture, hmm. because the people who are taken away in Noah's flood aren't Noah and his family. Noah and his family are the ones left behind. Yeah, the ones who are taken away are those who are taken away in the flood. Those so taken away isn't a good thing; it's a yeah. bad thing. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, again, there aren't a lot of people who are using this as rapture, you know, to, to, to teach the, the, the rapture. I think it has nothing to do with that at all. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about a rapture, I guess the people are taking, they're raptured into judgment. Yeah. Uh, they're not raptured into <laughs> sal- not raptured into salvation. Yeah, right. especially because it doesn't really specify who will be taken, you know, and who will be left. It, it doesn't... Mm-hmm really go into detail no no it doesn't it doesn't say that so you kind of look at the, you got to look at the context of the old testament and the old testament is those who were taken away were taken away in the flood 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 language is also used in daniel 9 24 through 27 um and you will also find it in second um, uh, peter chapter 3 uh so the idea of flood is a you know is 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 judgment those are the ones who are taken away in the flood these people these aren't people who are taken to heaven in a rapture yeah well, that wraps up this podcast. Man, we went we went longer than expected. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gary. Um, Anytime. Yeah, yeah. I, we would love to have you back on again. I, I love talking yeah, to you. This was very insightful. Yes, for sure. <laughs> uh, so you did. You have recorded this, and uh, if, if I, can we get it and maybe put it up on AV's site? Yeah, yeah sure, for sure. Okay. Sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. I'll, yeah, l- yeah. Let me know when it's available, and I'll work it out with uh, with Chad or, uh, or or Joel. Okay. 
So anyway, guys, that 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 goes ahead and uh, and wraps up our podcast. Uh, again, Gary, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we will have, uh, like I said, this this will this discussion will continue more, maybe possibly into Revelations, and we could we could talk about it more with uh, Gentry or Gary Demore, or maybe possibly Joel McDermott can come on. I can go message him. But anyway, guys, uh, we will be back next week, uh, next Friday, and uh, thank you so much. Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And uh, we'll see you on the next one. Thank you.